The earliest, most complete Hebrew Bible is estimated to be the highest valued manuscript ever offered at auction, $50 million. That's the price tag on the Codex Sassoon. And the Arab world's first church, mosque, and synagogue complex opens up as the UAE Interfaith Center in Abu Dhabi. I have that story for you. And are you ready for Purim? Because I'm not, and therefore, I think it's time to go down a checklist. I have a great list of tips and tricks for you. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your talented and humble host, Anula Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. This is episode 87. So glad you could be here. So glad you can make it to my podcast. All right. Well, what's going on in Israel? I'll tell you the truth. It's really complicated. I do not really care for the technicalities of politics and the minutiae of the details that one has to know to be able to have a conversation about the Supreme Court and the Knesset and the right and the left and the Israel and the Jews and the Americans and the anti-Semites and the Palestinians. It's a lot. It's really a lot. I, I got to say, I'm trying to keep up. But then again, you know, I am not a journalist. I'm not your news correspondent. I hope you take the time to find out what's going on in Israel from really reliable sources. And there are many or just don't pay attention to it at all. I know in your heart of hearts that you are not going to make a difference. <laughs> That's right. All right. Anyways, um, as far as God Elbaz goes, he will not be on the show, uh, mostly because I'm too busy to run after him, honestly, and he's all over the place. Like, God Elbaz is exactly as you think he is. He's just all over the place. <laughs> so, you know, he's in Israel, he's in America. Habibi Jali, it's all good. Um, but we have so many incredible other things to discuss on this precious space here we call the Weekly Squeeze. And I, I would like to start off with such a feel-good story that uh, I wish we had more of. You know, we're going to dive right into something really, really beautiful. Gordon Hartman is the founder of Morgan's Wonderland. And I'm looking at a picture of a beautiful, what, what appears to be a little amusement park. But listen up, especially if you have or know somebody who has a child in a wheelchair or a grown-up in a wheelchair. It's a 25-acre theme park in San Antonio, Texas that is 100% accessible to those with disabilities. It is ultra-accessible, says Hartman, Gordon Hartman, the founder of Morgan's Wonderland. Um, Mr. Hartman was always creative and he had an entrepreneurial spirit. Wow, I said that right. Entrepreneurial, entrepreneur. Some words you read and you never say, you know? When do I ever say entrepreneurial? Anyway, so Mr. Hartman was very wealthy. He owned a lot of land. And then in 2005, he sold his business, okay? And he established a foundation that lets children and adults pursue their dreams, even when cognitive or special needs are present. And they created Morgan's Wonderland. It was designed in 2010 and opened its doors and opened its doors in 2017. Wow, what a beautiful story. Do you want to hear more? Well, I hope so because you're about to. Hartman and his family were on vacation in 2006. He saw that his daughter uh, wanted to play with two other kids at the swimming pool, but they didn't really want to interact with her tossing a ball back and forth because of her physical and cognitive special needs. So what does he do? He makes a giving pledge where he publicly promises to give away all of his wealth. And then he spends the rest of his days creating this Morgan's Wonderland for the children and adults that have special needs, saying that their special needs are staggering 
Um, this, this segment of society is largely overlooked, marginalized, and has no voice. And our mission is to make their world a little easier to navigate and enjoy and to be their advocate. So now there is this whirling wonderland that you can take your loved one to. They have a colorful Ferris wheel that takes visitors high enough into the air to deliver a panoramic view of the park without being scary for most riders. I love that. It's 5.5 stories tall, obviously wheelchair accessible. There are gondolas that accommodate children and adults with wheelchairs. It's eight acres, so you can spend a day there, two days there. And they have the Wonderland Express with multiple rail cars equipped with wheelchair accessible ramps. So everybody's going on the choo-choo train. I love it. There's a unique sensory village at Morgan's Wonderland. Um, it's an indoor area with five regions where people can explore and there's hands-on learning. It's like an indoor kind of museum vibe. I love that. Sensory grocery store, exploration station, an interactive shadow room, a television newsroom. It sounds so fun. Oh my gosh. I want to go there. This is really, really beautiful. Amazing. There's also a fully inclusive sports complex. This is wild. A 16,000 square foot assistance facility for um, special services and organizations that can set up camp nearby. Amazing. There's doctors and therapists um, on call. And this whole thing is just so wonderful. I give Morgan's Wonderland my stamp of approval and just wait until the Jews get there. Wait until the Jews get there. Mr. Morgan's like, this is perfect. Everything's pristine and brand new and they're all excited. Opening day is coming soon. And then the Jews arrive with their sandwiches and their <laughs> matzah next to the Cholomite. And it's the new Great Adventures. I think I saw somewhere that Great Adventures is closing. Did I see that? I definitely saw that somewhere. So um, this is going to be the next place. You know, there's bigger bathrooms. It works for the from families. Amazing. I'm going to be getting kickbacks from Morgan Inspiration Island for years to come. Either that or they're going to sue me. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to something else joyful. I really focused a lot this week on positive stuff because, because why not? Like, just why not? Makes me feel good. All right. Nine hospitals in Moldova. And this is according to the Mold Press. <laughs> if you want your Moldavian news, simply go to moldpress.md. And you will find out that Israel gave nine hospitals in Moldova, 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 uh, $250,000 worth of medical equipment in their prenatal centers in nine district hospitals. So Israel gave eight incubators, six resuscitation tables, three radiant tables um, to these hospitals for much needed medical care for their premature and sick babies. In these particular hospitals, over a thousand Moldavian women give birth every year. Beautiful. I love that. That is a positive story. We don't get enough credit. The Jewish people do not get enough credit. But I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about a brilliant idea, a brilliant idea that I'm still like taking in because of its brilliance. Listen to this. A lady. <laughs> Clearly, I am not a journalist. A woman turns old leather sofas into $200 handbags, okay? And they're flying out the door. You got to hear this. There's an English woman who is turning leather sofas into beautiful handbags as a way to save them from the landfill, okay? Now, leather sofas are expensive. We've had a number that my children have colored and cut 
and, you know, desecrated. But in any case, it always feels bad to throw out a, a worn-in leather couch because you're like, no, 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 that, there's a little part over there that's still good. So this woman, Lisa Crick, she takes these pre-loved couches and she upcycles them into messenger bags and luggage and then she sells them. And that is pretty, pretty cool. She gives away the, the cushion stuffing for free for people to use as dog beds or to stop window drafts because they're in England. <laughs> In any case, she's totally killing it. She's making a whole bunch of money by making all these kind of bags. She tried these, making these denim bags, like she would take people's old jeans and make them into aprons. I don't know exactly. I'm not so artsy-fartsy, but Lisa is, and that is beautiful. And that actually reminds me that right about now, I should be hearing the Altizachen, Altizachen, and that has been one constant. I hope that never goes away because there are certain things that are very Israeli here that... We're losing, like a little bit. I like the chocolate milk in the bags. I, I was disappointed when they started making cartons. And, and blasphemy, plastic bottles of milk and juice. Hashem Yishmar. Certain things just should stay the same. And that's why I appreciate the call of, not the call of prayer, but the call of Altizachin, where you can hear the Arab vagabonds, the Arab peddlers, the Arab nomads, the desert people, just coming around and picking up the Jewish people's old crap. They've been doing that forever. And now they just do it on a broken down truck. The other day I had someone drop off our fruits and vegetables, an Arab worker and an older man. And he saw a TV outside my door and he looked at me and he said, could I take it? And I said, yeah, because it's broken. I said, Loved. He said, okay. And he took it anyway, because that's what they do. They take your old crap. Um, and then they try to steal your land. <laughs> That's the strategy. Anyways, this is a nice story about recycling and making the world a better place. All right, one more thing that I want to share with you, and I, I like to bring you things that could perhaps improve or save your life rather, like this fire blanket. So check this out. Think about the times that there's been a fire emergency in your house. Now, everyone has one spouse who's in a full panic that the house is going to burn down because you left the oven on and, 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 you know, you do explain to him that ovens could be left on all night. They're actually designed to be able to be left on for many, many, many hours. So just because I left it on for eight hours doesn't mean that it was going to explode. So I'm sure you've had those conversations in your relationships, but one of you is always a little more paranoid than the next. So the one who's not so paranoid is in all likelihood going to burn the house down when they forget the food on the fire or they add oil or alcohol to something that they shouldn't. So how cool would it be if you had an emergency blanket in your kitchen that's attached to the wall, you take it down, you rip off the wrapper, and you throw it on the fire. And as soon as you throw it on the fire, it, it stifles the fire and the fire goes out. And it's really simple. Even children and elderly can use it. You pull on the straps, comes out this blanket, and you throw it over the pan. You throw it over the pot. And this way, you're not standing like all confused. How do you use the fire hydrant? I never used a fire hydrant. I would be freaking out if I had one and, and I had to use it. There's one outside my door. I don't know how to use it. I do know how to put stuff underneath it, like my keys, which I will not be doing anymore. <laughs> but anyways, I thought this was a pretty cool thing. It's called a... Uh, emergency fire blanket, and you can get it um, on indch.com. Indch, what does that stand for? Inch, inch.com, indch.com. If you're going to save a life, you might as well do it on a budget. 
This week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by LaBayitGifts.com. Have you ever wanted to send a gift to someone in Israel and you didn't know where to start? Well, I have the perfect solution for you. LaBayitGifts.com is a website where you can not only order gifts for your loved ones abroad in the Holy Land, but you can also register a bride and groom. So that way, all the wedding presents arrive to the bride and groom's home without any complication. Because Labai Gifts is taking care of it for you. There is finally a gift registry so that friends and family from all over the world can send you, bride and groom, who are landing here in Israel, newly married, all the beautiful gifts for your special occasion. And when you have a baby, Bezrat Hashem, gifts for your new addition too, arriving at your door with fast and reliable delivery, excellent customer service. Gift giving in Israel should always be this easy. You are going to be the absolute number one priority of LabayaGifts.com. All the reps are English speakers. They guarantee an incredible shopping experience. Forget the Israeli postal system. Send gifts through LabayaGifts.com. All right. I am so not in the mood of a Jimmy Carter news cycle, but it looks like that is what's coming our way as President Jimmy Carter announces to the world that he's finally, finally going to die. <laughs> he's in hospice or whatever. They made an official announcement. So it's the end of his life. Whoopie-doo. Um, I will say that from what I know, Jimmy Carter was one of the most uh, anti-Israel president that America's ever had. And despite playing a role in the Camp David Accords that basically made peace between Israel and Egypt, Ki'ilu peace, by the way, Ki'ilu peace, big peace partners Egypt is, um, but yeah, he was very critical of Israel, always. He called for a two-state solution when everyone knew that was not going to work. Um, he wrote a book called Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, and he basically accused Israel of being apartheid. And that was a big fat lie then, and it's a big fat lie now. So yeah, he was not a Jew lover, and who knows how what kind of impact he had um, with his position. And let I me mean, look at America today. Here we are all these years later, and America hates Israel. So, yeah, thank you, Jimmy Carter, for nothing. Um, but that actually brings me to another yokel um, known as Bernie Sanders, who also just doesn't seem to go away. Now, Bernie Sanders was interviewed this week, and he said that the Palestinian donors who pay his bills are very worried about what Netanyahu is doing and what's happening to the poor Palestinian terrorists. You know, and he says, let me tell you something, I haven't said this publicly yet, but I think the United States gives billions of dollars in aid to Israel. And I think we've got to put some strings attached to that and say you cannot run a racist government. You cannot turn your back on a two-state solution. You must allow terrorists to terrorize Israel and the Jewish people. That's what Bernie Sanders said. You cannot demean the Palestinian people there. America cannot demean the Palestinian people, the Palestinian terrorists who are terrorizing Israel. You can't do that and then come to America and ask for money. So that's Bernie Sanders' opinion on America's relationship with Israel. And that tells you everything you need to know about the stronghold that the Palestinians, the Arabs, the Muslim world has over American politicians, unfortunately. But let's focus on the positive because there are politicians like Nikki Haley who are terrific. I love Nikki Haley. I just listened to two of her audiobooks and I was super impressed with her. And honestly, I don't think she will be president, but I would love to be in a world where Nikki Haley is president. Love it. I love the way she thinks. She's a strong, bold, clear-headed, smart, intelligent, just awesome woman. She really is. And I am super impressed with her. And I put in a request to have her on the podcast. And if Hashem wants it to happen, 
we will have Nikki Haley on the Weekly Squeeze podcast. Crazier things have happened. All right, let's move on. All right, to all my regular listeners, my beloved, the ones who leave me five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and take a minute to figure out how to do it. It's not that hard. Um, you probably heard episode 74 where I spoke to Rabbi Levi Duchman about life in Abu Dhabi. So you will appreciate this next story. There was an inauguration yesterday in Abu Dhabi where a mosque, church, and synagogue now will occupy the same space. It is the Abrahamic family house, a nod to the Abraham Accords, which created a peaceful relationship between Israel and the Gulf. So now they have a shul that's also a, well, not also, side by side on the same grounds as a church, the St. Francis of Assisi Church, and a mosque, Iman Al-Tayyab Mosque, and the Moses Ben Maimon Synagogue. This is such a beautiful story. Wow, really interesting. It's a lot to take in, honestly. So the chief rabbi of of uh, the UK was there. He put on the mezuzah and he tweeted out, um, he tweeted out a picture of it. This is the first purpose-built synagogue in the Arab world for nearly a century. Very, very nice. Three houses of worship in the same place, in the capital of Abu Dhabi. Its president, Muhammad Khalifa al-Mubarak, said that visitors are invited to participate in religious services, guided tours, celebrations, and opportunities to explore faith. And I saw some of the video, and it is astoundingly gorgeous. I mean, it's Jerusalem stone, appears to be. It's white. It's just elegant. It's awe-inspiring. It's just mouth-dropping. Another reason to go visit the Gulf before everything falls apart. <laughs> um, there are other shoals in the Gulf Arab region, also in Bahrain. And there is, from what I am seeing, more and more of a very special something happening out in this Muslim country, a synagogue being built with Jews flying in for the inauguration. There's going to be Shabbos tefillah there. There was a Sefer Torah donated by the president of the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahayan. And this is just another sign of the normalization of, re of relations between the UAE and Israel, part of the U.S. brokered Abraham Accords. Very, very nice. We should only have peace in the Middle East. Okay, I just checked my calendar, and as it turns out, Purim is in two weeks. That is crazy. When did that happen? The year just flew by. This maskless year flew by, and I loved every second of it. I love not having to wear a mask. Okay. Um, I saw this on Facebook, and I thought I would share it. This is from the Clutter Coach, Karen Furman, karenfurman.com. She shared on Facebook for the public a Purim checklist, and I thought that was great because Purim is in two weeks, and I don't have a checklist. I'm just going to wake up one morning and it's going to be here, perm. My kids got their costumes and everything else has not been taken care of. So let's go through this together and we can determine where we are as far as perm prep goes, okay? I'm reading through this for the first time. Make space. Purge the refrigerator. Toss frozen leftovers or expired items. So she's saying that perm is going to be a lot of incoming food. So you want to make space, clear out your pantry. I mean, we're not we don't have that issue in our house. We just can't keep up with the amount of food that goes out of here. So we have plenty of space. But if you are one of those families that doesn't clean their fridge, aside from once a year, and you know who you are, now is the time. All right, next, she says, designate. You want to designate a shelf for the perishables. So I suppose if you are cooking or baking for Purim, make sure you have space to put the stuff in the fridge. Create a shopping list. I hate shopping lists. I really do hate shopping lists because I end up running around the store because I don't know what aisle everything is on. I just put it on the list. So now I'm running around the store and I don't want to do that. 
So I don't make lists. But if you are a list person, like my mother-in-law, write down what's needed for the seuda, for your mishloch manot, your shalach manis, and disposable items and stuff like that. Okay, make stations. Yeah, perm, you need stations. Perm takes over your, every chag takes over your house, come to think of it. But perm, specifically, with the amount of costumes and the food, like the place looks like a perm bomb exploded by the end of the day. So for a few days, actually, two days before, two days after. So you need a specific location for costumes and backup costumes if you have kids. And you're going to need backup costumes. Don't kid yourself. We bought my son two just in case. You never know. So you need stations for all your stuff, all the bags from Amazing Savings or stuff that are coming in or it depends on how fancy schmancy you are. There's a lot of Purim paraphernalia, so make space. Map it out. Plan a delivery route for Purim Day. My mother used to do this. My father used to drive. Sounds like a pretty solid plan, but things always went wrong, mostly because my mother sent things that needed to be refrigerated and we lived in Miami. And my father was in a station wagon with a bunch of kids who had too much candy and itchy costumes. And it was boiling hot. And my mother was delivering ice cream on, yeah, on perm with crunch. It was delicious. And everybody was waiting for Faye's ice cream. But (laughs) perm was a good time. Anyway, so map it out. Make a plan, whether you're walking, driving, or using public transportation. Make a plan of attack for deliveries and visitations. I don't understand how perm is supposed to work, though, because everybody, here's Megillah, comes home and then runs out to give Mishloch Manot. And then everyone's running around trying to find the families that they have to go to, but they're also out looking for those families. The whole thing is so confusing. I mean, maybe that's part of the fun. Everyone's just running around looking for each other, just like a chicken without a head. (laughs) That's how you see everyone's costumes. I mean, if we weren't running around the entire perm, how would we see all those cool costumes? Okay, so map it out. Next, um, gather, make a perm box. A see-through plastic lidded box is recommended. Put in all the graggers, the megillas, the extra bags, the decorations. And then next year, you pull it out. Everything's in this big container. Some families container, some families don't container. You know your budget. Um, check times. Check times for Megillah reading. Yes, I never know what time Megillah reading is because every year I'm like, okay, I'll go in the morning at 8 o'clock and then a costume doesn't work out or somebody woke up late or um, the Svardi minion takes forever. And, and you know, whatever whatever it is, I, I want other options. So put those options on the fridge so nobody starts panicking first thing in the morning and you start purring off on the wrong foot. What else does she say here? She says, get cash. Go to the ATM to have cash because when the kids come to the door, you're going to give them a quarter, a dollar. I had an uncle who used to give us a $2 bill every perm. And that was pretty cool. Silver dollars are also cool. I don't know if they're available. I don't know if silver dollars are affordable anymore in America, but you know, have cash and make it fun. Um, Use disposables. So perm is not a time for your dishes. Okay. I don't care how fancy you are. Set your table, take a picture, put it on Instagram and then use plastic. Pre-fast food decisions. Decide what the non-fasting members of the family will eat during the fast of Esther. Make a nosh and nibble platter so everyone can help themselves. I like that. A nosh and nibble platter. That's very formal. My kids are just like whatever stashed under the sink. Um, That's where we keep our snacks. Uh, Make more stations. We need more stations. More stations. So clear off more counter space, more tables, more beds, more bathtubs. Stuff is coming in. A lot of incoming. If you have a lot of kids and you're a big family, make space. Prepare supplies. You need your bags, your boxes, your ribbons, your stickers, your labels, your tape, all in one place for as long as that lasts. Label. She says, if there are many people in the household, have a container for each family member labeled with their name for the Michelle Achmanas that gets delivered. Then nothing gets mixed up and kids are not fighting and nothing gets lost and nobody's freaking out, even though they're all going to be freaking out by the end of the day. Anyway, this will help minimize the effect of the sugar on the chaos of the chaos on the sugar. This is a good list. This is a great list. And that's why the internet can be amazing. 
She says, um, this is Karen Furman, by the way, put out uh, food options for Burm Day. Put out healthy foods such as cut fruit, hard-boiled eggs, mini sandwiches, other options besides candy and junk food. This is, by the way, when all those shalchmanes that include real food are so appreciated. Those are the best shalchmanes. Like, stop sending nash. I mean, nash is fine, but like, if you're sending real food, that's my girl. Um, accessible cleaning tools. Have a trash can and broom. Easily accessible. Prepare for chaos and mess and throw up and sticky candy and alcohol and food on the floor and crumbs and joy and music and simcha and celebration that we once again were scheduled to be murdered and massacred and killed and genocided and Hashem saved the day. Thank you, Hashem. L'chaim. Let's eat. Thank you so much, Karen Furman, for this wonderful list Karen, the clutter coach, from clutter to very, very expensive furniture and art and antiques and collectibles, Sotheby's, the English uh, corporation, essentially, that has auction houses all around the world that sell fine art, jewelry, watches, wine, books, manuscripts, basically all very rich people stuff. You know, they, they handle the most prestigious and valuable collections in the world, they're experts, bekitzer. So they are um, advertising, <laughs> is that the right word? Or they have up a auction for the most expensive Bible, the most expensive book of all kind, the most important singular text in human history. The Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew Bible that is more than a thousand years old is going to be auctioned off for an estimated $50 million, Sotheby announced on Wednesday. It is called the Codex Sassoon. It dates back to the late 9th, early 10th century. It's the most complete Hebrew Bible ever discovered, and now it's going to be the most expensive historical document to ever go under the hammer at Sotheby's when it's put up for auction in May. So there is a lot of chatter about this. You can go onto any website and, and read about it from different perspectives. But according to the Jewish perspective, this manuscript actually bridges the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date back to the 3rd century BCE, and today's modernly accepted form of the Hebrew Bible. It is named after David Solomon Sassoon, who had one of the most expensive and significant private collections of ancient Jewish texts in the world. The book was considered lost for 600 years following the destruction of a shoal in northeast Syria where it was kept and then reemerged in 1929. Um, it has been in the private hands of Swiss financier and collector Jacques Safra, who put it up for auction. And according to Sharon Lieberman Mintz, Sotheby's senior Judaica consultant, the reason that the Codis, the Bible, is so expensive, it was it is because it was expensive at the time. It took over 100 animal skins to make it, and it was written by a single scribe. It's a masterpiece of scribal art, she says. That is pretty beautiful and incredible and exciting. So if you have 30 to $50 million to spare, you can go to Sotheby's in May and perhaps bid for one of the most or the most expensive book that will ever be sold in all time. By the way, if you're really interested, it's going to be available for public viewing. In um, for the first time in 40 years in London, Tel Aviv, Dallas, Los Angeles, and New York in May. Very cool. That was a feel-good story. You know what else makes me feel good? The Kalaniot, the little red anemones, the little red buttercups that have bloomed all over the country, and they're so beautiful. They're these little poppies. They're red, bright red with a little black center, and they're delicate and the brightest 
boldest, reddest red, and they're all over the Negev, and they're all over the country, and all over Beit Shemesh, and Israelis go nuts for Kalaniot. It is their favorite flower. It's a national flower, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you are missing out. And honestly, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, because until I made Aliyah, I did not know anything about the anemones. Now, I know everything about nature, almost everything, (laughs) because I planted a tree. I planted a tree, and now I am an official Israeli farmer. I have toiled and tilled the land. And by the way, you can too. And I am putting a link in my show notes so that you can plant a tree in Israel. You could do it for a birthday. You could do it for an anniversary. Israel 365 is making it so easy for anyone listening to just plant their own tree in Israel. They're going to put a tag on it. They're going to put your name on it. And you are going to have a little spot here where you can bring your falafel, sit underneath it, and have a moment of pure Israeli bliss underneath the shade of a tree that you planted thanks to the weekly squeeze. Okay, so head over to my show notes, click on the link, and buy a tree in Israel. Help support the show and create a little more nature here in the land of Israel so that when you move here, it'll be green and lush and beautiful and the anemones will sprinkle the mountainsides that you see when you open up the window in your kitchen every morning from your Israeli apartment. The dream awaits you, okay? All right, speaking of waiting, I have waited too long to share this interview that I had with Eli Lake. It's really not an interview. It's really a conversation. I invited him onto the podcast because he is a brilliant American journalist. I love his podcast. Um, He's a contributor to the Daily Beast, Newsweek, Bloomberg, uh, CNN, Fox, C-SPAN, Charlie Rose, serious reporter, you know, the whole deal. He's also Jewish, very, very creative. I love his podcast. I listen to it regularly. And I invited him to join me on the Weekly Squeeze. I got to say, we spoke for an hour and a half, and I had to edit the interview because there were so many things that we just went off on a tangent on, including an entire conversation about secular and Jewish music, but I did not share that. I just felt like it didn't lend itself to the interests of my audience, and I hope you could respect me for that decision. But I am sharing the rest of the, the interview that got delayed because of some other news stories that broke, and I wanted to share different conversations earlier Regardless, without further ado, my friend, Eli Lake. Eli Lake, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Okay, so you're a a journalist, a podcast host, uh, a columnist um, for numerous papers and periodicals. I have spent the last week listening to every single one of your episodes on your podcast. And I am so impressed because I'm a bit of a podcast junkie and I'm hard to uh, please I'm a recording engineer, so I like when the quality's good. I like when there's creativity and flair and spunk. And for somebody who works as a clean-cut journalist, for the most part, your your podcast is really interesting and, and immersive. Oh, thank you so much. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm a podcast junkie myself. I had always wanted to do it. When my contract with Bloomberg, where I was a syndicated columnist for many years, uh, was not renewed, I decided that I wanted to try podcasting. And uh, so I've, I've been doing it. And uh, I have to say, I really like it. And I feel that I've uh, I've found a voice and, and a kind of style that is a little different than a lot of them, because there are many podcasts, as you know, and a lot of times it's just people you know, friends talking about the news or something that's interesting or that kind of thing. And I try to have a theme and and write and and it's a great outlet. I do write the scripts for the monologue. So it's a, I see it as an extension of the kind of print journalism that I've been doing for almost 30 years now professionally. So Mm -hmm. that's a, so that's a, that's, that's fair, but it's very nice of you to say that. Thank you so much for listening. 
Tell me a little bit about your your Jewish upbringing, your education, and how a nice Jewish boy from Philly, is it? It's a Philadelphia. Yes, it is. How you ended up in Bosasa Central Prison in Somalia? True. I want to hear that story. So take me from your bar mitzvah to the prison. (laughs) (laughs) You have really done your homework. A lot of people don't know that about me. So I uh, grew up in Philadelphia. I have raised my Jewish family. My parents were, uh, I would say, you know, fairly left leaning. We grew up in, you know, Philadelphia is a very liberal city. They sent me originally to, we call it Sunday school in America and can apply, but it's basically Jewish education, supplemental Jewish education. But it was through something known as, uh, it was secular Jewish humanism. And this was, uh, you'll see, it gets a little strange here. Now, in some ways, that's kind of like a God optional uh, version of Judaism, although it was uh, fairly rigorous in that we learned a lot about the tradition. As a you know, as I was getting ready to go to high school, I felt like I had been missing something, and I wanted to go to something more traditional. So I went to high school to something called Akiba Hebrew Academy, which is a Jewish day school. It is now known as Barak Academy. For me, it will always be Akiba, which was named after Rabbi Akiba. And there, I really kind of got the basics. Um, so when I had my bar mitzvah. It was really untraditional. It was actually a, it was almost like a talk that I gave at age 13 on uh, Jewish perspectives on nuclear proliferation. I kid you not. (laughs) So you're saying it wasn't deeply rooted in traditional scripts. I did not read from the Torah, but there was Jewish programming in the presentation. And, you know, we had a a party and it was, it was, it, it was kind of elements of it. But, you know, I feel like I've gotten the advantage of, you know, going to a day school for high school. I was able to learn a lot of what I had missed, I think, in, in, in this. I'm, I'm grateful for both, I should say. And um, I also got a chance to study for six months in Jerusalem. And this was in the late 1980s. You can see, I'll tell how old I am. But I went on something called Tichun Ramah Yerushalayim. This was right around the time of the first intifada. I, I really became fascinated by Israel. It was a great experience for me, the chance to travel around and to, to you know, experience the full range of it. Did you identify? Did you connect? A hundred percent, I connect. I, growing up, was very much politically on the left. So, but I, what I loved was the intense participation of everybody in Israeli politics. This is back when I was 16. I'm very different now, but I was, you know, I I was interested in at the time, this is before I think it was um, the merits where it was Rots and Mapam came together. So I was interested in the Rots party because I thought I was, you know, I was very liberal left-wing American Jew as you I'm sure are aware of. So at the time I had this view that like the Palestinians were being unfairly oppressed. But I also had a real Zionist, I should say, I was also, I went to Zionist summer camp. So I I also had a sense of the history of Israel. I obviously knew about the Shoah. So it was, there was a, it was it's a complex. complex yeah, kind of it is thing. complex. And my school did not indoctrinate us one way or the other on this. They led, they really encouraged us in this period to learn both sides of it. And I mean, I don't know how old you are, but the first Intifada was really different, certainly, than the second Intifada in that it, it felt like less of a betrayal because there wasn't a peace process beforehand. And I think there was uh, less, at least, organized uh, suicide bombing and things like that. But it was a great experience for me, and I certainly connected with Israel. And I kind of connected more and more. And, you know, over time, I drifted not to the hard right, but I drifted more to the right. I would consider myself center right. And that's a kind of the 
kind of classic definition of neoconservatism, which is that you start off on the left and you go to the right. Mm. In that sense, I feel like I might be like the last generation of real neoconservatives that actually have experience. Who are some other neoconservatives? I mean, neoconservative is, 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 I always think of it as the Irving Crystal talked about it as a migration in some ways. Now, Irving Crystal starts off and he, he's a Trotskyite, you know, and then, you know, by 1980, he's supporting Ronald Reagan. And so it's the, it's a migration. And so in that respect, I think of Irving Crystal. Now, neocon has become a pejorative or warmonger or something like that. Right. You're an you know, interventionalist in, last, in foreign affairs. Yeah, you know, since you know? for the last 20 years because of the Iraq war. But, you know, the original neocons of like the 70s and the 80s were, you know, interested in a wide range of things. And they brought to the Republican Party and the, the right an understanding of social sciences. So in, it's, it's you know, there were a lot of good policies that kind of came out of neoconservative thinking. And I'm not denigrating necessarily. I, I might be the last person who will not uh, denounce the Iraq war. But how do you feel about uh, American exceptionalism? Is that something? Are you like a make America uh, great I'm a again? Huge, uh, I'm a b- big believer in American exceptionalism. And I wish more of my countrymen agreed with me on okay. that. OK, that's good to know. Yeah. All so right. I'm a believer in American exceptionalism. I mean, but I'm also I, I have a real appreciation of Zionism. And um, I think that the Zionist position is that it's important to have an alliance with America. Of course, it's, it's Israel's most important ally. But it's I, I, I'm un, I've been uncomfortable now for a while with the subsidy that the United States provides for Israel's national defense and its military because Israel's a prosperous country. And I don't think it should be reliant on any power. I think it gives the United States too much leverage, which the Obama administration kind of I actually agree. I do agree. And I want to get into that more in yeah. depth. On, on, That's Menachem Begin's view, by the yeah. way, as well. Who's one of my heroes. The Lubavitcher yeah. also felt that um, from a religious perspective that Israel is better off independent, not relying on other people, because that just puts us in a bad but it spot should every still, time. It's, it has a deep connection with America, and it should. Oh, it's, it, it should hope, remain an ally and a friend. Absolutely. Yeah, that, and I think it's important that the American Jewish community appreciate Israel, which I'm worried about. You know, I think American Jews are drifting in general. You know, yeah, there's a lot. There's so much crisis. to discuss here. I, I, I really want to get into it all. But first, just tell me about the Somalia thing, because I don't want to jump into a, a, an hour of deep conversation and then we'll forget to address that. OK, so just, sure. Very. I was a reporter for The Daily Beast and Newsweek at the time. I had an opportunity to visit a training facility for a counter-piracy force that was in uh, a territory of Somalia known as Puntland, that where these guys were being trained by not Eric Prince personally, but people in his military contract. So it was a great opportunity to kind of go to this place that most Americans and most people don't get to go to and to see it. And I was able to observe that prison when I was kind of in that in that part of the world and, and, and learning about it. And I think it's valuable to, uh, to do that kind of reporting on the ground. Although I, I mean, I still travel, but I do less of that stuff now that I'm more kind of as a columnist and an opinion journalist. Um, although I'd like to kind of get back to going to some of those places. There are journalists who will uh, put themselves at an incredible risks. I have been in some 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 yeah. some close calls. I, I heard you talk. You, you told Ari Lam yeah. you had an episode with them a, a year ago, and you mentioned that yeah. you you were in Egypt also as well. You lived in Egypt. I for lived a while. in I lived in Cairo. Yes, I mean, like you know, I've I've been to Iraq a lot during you know when there I mean, there were more Americans there, obviously. But I've been to Iraq and I've 
I've done reporting from both um, inside American military units that were on the forward, also independently with like, you know, working with uh, various Iraqi politicians that I've known over the years. It's just important to immerse yourself in the culture before you start analyzing it and and writing about it and and sharing your thoughts on it. And I think that's something that's uh, a shortcoming um, right now, for sure, um, as far as the world press goes and and their experience with Israel and their opinion on Israel. Like I said, we'll get into that soon. You, you, You described the conditions in the Somali prison. You said there were pirates there and there were, you know, Islamic terrorists. And it was just... Just, just really, really horrific conditions. And I could assure you that the prisons in Israel are nothing like the prisons in Somalia. As a matter of fact, as of today, Ben Gvir's second big move here in Israel is that he eliminated the pita ovens from the jail so that the Palestinians should not be making, the Palestinian terrorists that are in prison shouldn't be making fresh bread every day. So apparently we did not know Yeah, this. that was a big thing that Ben Gvir was talking about how how kindly Israel treats uh, its the terrorists that it, it arrests and so forth. Right. Well, he I talked about I, that we, famous we, line about marmalade and toast or something. Yeah. Like that, well, we right? could get into that. We can get into that because I yeah. I've been living in Israel. I've been living here for five years. I grew up um, in Florida. I wasn't very political. I'm not an academic. I didn't go to college. But let's let's jump right into this whole the the topic du jour of every jour of every day. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, okay? So it's one of the longest and most intractable conflicts in in modern history. And so many people have attempted, the greatest minds of the 21st century have attempted to create some sort of lasting peace here. Oslo Accords, Camp David Summit, uh, you know, Annapolis Convention in 2007, the Y River Memorandum in 1998, the Roadmap to Peace for the two-state solution that, you know, all that has failed. The Madrid conference in 1991. The Madrid conference. Um, and we know the political reasons why. You know, there's this deep-rooted historical and cultural tensions between the Jews and the, and the Arabs. You know, there's a lack of trust after all these years of broken promises and, and terror. Um, the international interference, I think, plays a role in the impossibility of, of peace in the Middle East right now. But everyone keeps taking a stab at it. No pun intended. <laughs> um, I spoke to Professor Dershowitz recently. He wrote a dozen books on the topic and still no peace. I spoke to Rudy Rockman. He's a peace-loving activist, and he he preaches love and empathy for the Palestinians, and then we should have interfaith community events and people-to-people programs and, and joint business venues and, and our environmental projects and on the ground. We should work and connect door-to-door and all that, but there's no peace. Um, we saw what happened this weekend and so on and so forth. So I ask you, Maybe, maybe at this point, we can just allow for the right to do their thing. I I mean, this is the most right government we've had in years. And everyone's, you know, comparing it and making the parallels between Mayor Kahana and Ben Gvir. And we were discussing that ad nauseum. But maybe, maybe he was actually onto something. Maybe we need to just abandon all political attempts and just let the Israelis be Jews deal with the Arabs in the most Jewish way possible. I mean, they're coming at us as fundamentalists, ready for jihad. So why wouldn't anyone assume that the answers are are not within the Jewish people and their Torah and their mentality and their religion? Like maybe we should just reconsider this whole thing and come at them like they're coming at us. Well, okay. I mean, I think I disagree a little bit there because... What Kahana said, and this is not what Ben Gavir says, but Kahana wanted to transfer Israeli Arabs out of Israel into wherever they were going to go. I don't think that's realistic for a number of reasons. I don't, I don't think it's humane, but that, that's not the main thing. I think it's impractical in the sense that 
you know, I don't think that Israel really could survive the sort of moral opprobrium if they were to kind of transfer what would be what, I don't know, two million people out of the country. I don't think it's they want really, to. I don't think they want to. I think they would prefer No, I don't think they peace. want to either, but I'm saying I, I think it's it, you can't quite do that. So I think that in that respect, Kahana was wrong. I think also Kahana was a kind of typical classic demagogue. He would figure out ways to, to sort of really hit deep emotional chords that, you know, appeal to a lot of you know, especially Jewish men, by talking about the treatment of women and how how there were Israeli prostitutes and things like that. And but but uh, he was I, right I, on that. He was right on that. The majority of Israeli prostitutes are pimped by 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 Arabs till till this day. Okay, fine. But I'm just saying, you know, the majority of of Israeli women turn into a life of prostitution. It's a terrible tragedy when that happens. But he made it seem like there was a there was this this epidemic of of uh you know this this problem. And and once you start kind of doing that, then it's like a mirror image in many ways of the kind of demagoguery that we expect from the Arabs, whether they're jihadist Arabs or na- nationalists like Nasser would say the same thing. It's a, when I lived in Cairo, one of the things that I that was uh, illuminating for me is that, you know, really, if you look at the messages of the Muslim Brotherhood and the Nasserites, they were not that different, even though they were, you know, politically. I mean, yes, they one one group wanted to create a a country that was, you know, based on the laws of the Quran and the other one believed in the, you know, new Ba'athist socialism or whatever, but they still appealed to the sense that like our dignity, uh, you know, your your dignity, you're being disrespected, you know, and and that usually is a uh, way of distracting from um, a leader, in this case of Egypt, a dictatorship that, uh, you know, was corrupt and, and didn't allow, I mean, so... I have a problem with that style of politics, whether it's from the Jews or from the Arabs or from whoever. You're saying an emotion emotionally fall, driven politics? It's not emotionally driven politics. It's a, it's a it's a politics that is deliberately trying to to prey on the fears stoke, of yeah to stoke yeah, the fears not just prey on the fears but stoke a kind of indignation, a sense that this is an outrage and like you should be outraged. And it's very easy to do when you see these horrific attacks on synagogues. Right. And you I see think stabbing Israelis are, are outraged nonetheless. I mean, the, the- absolutely. And they should be outraged by that because it's a horrible thing. Now, I, is there an argument that the Torah and the Talmud are part of the Jewish identity and that there was an element of the um, original, especially on the Ben-Gurion side of the original Zionists, that looked down at religion as superstition and believed a bunch of things about Jewish identity, which don't really make much sense, which is overthinking. And I mean, I agree with all of that. I, I, I myself am not, you know, the most religious person, but I respect people who are. And I see that if Judaism is your identity, then you have to understand that it's a religion and it's going to have implications views. in real life. Yeah. Well, not just implications in real life. It's like there's the ref- the, the 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 modern rabbis affiliated with the reform movement, especially, but also the conservative movement in America. They are constantly trying to say that the Torah and the Talmud and Halakha just line up perfectly with our 21st century liberal values. It's not always the case. Well, at that, at, well one second. The, the, the conservative and reform movement have, pre- at this point, pretty much discarded all of Halakha. Well, it's, but I, so what I'm saying is that they won't say, like, the, you know, well, you know, I, I'm, not a big, I'm, not, I'm not a literalist, so I don't read the Torah as if it happened like I would read a history book. But they would say, well, you know, with the metaphor, the, you know, if you look at this the right like way, interpretations. it really it's, tells right. us that, 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 that the Jewish position is to respect respect 17 different genders. That's a real thing that's happening right now 
in synagogues. Know, and there are synagogues, there are rabbis who are now also saying, because they don't like the makeup of this government, that they will no longer say the prayer for Israel. I know, in but that is, in my opinion, almost blasphemy, honestly. That is not, that whole thing is so absurd to me. I, I couldn't even get into that conversation because it would take us completely away from, from the topic. And I, I understand what you say. I don't want to, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that recognize that if you're going to say that you have a Jewish identity, that it's based in a, in a religion, and that religion is an uh, relying on old texts that are not, if you want to be intellectually honest, are not going to come down and support what you consider as a modern person who wants to also have uh, these liberal beliefs. I mean, you have to understand that they're attention. That doesn't mean that you can't be both, but it just means that you should at least, you shouldn't try to say that the old religion supports 100% all of your very new liberal identity. 100%, and the, it goes for the other way, yeah. the, the other side as well. But yeah. certain things we can agree on as, as a majority, let's say, or as citizens here yeah. in Israel. For example, you know, if the Arabs are, again, coming at us with their religious jihadism, then w our argument can remain that, that God gave the, the, the Israel to the Jewish people. And that, that is something that anyone who reads the Quran knows is true. The Christians know that it's true. And to disregard that argument because it's convenient and because all the leftists in the world have joined the pity party supporting the Palestinians. So now that whole narrative has become intertwined with their right-wing extremism. It's like they're, they're, they're dancing, you know, there's an expression, you dance at, at two hasanas, you're dancing at both weddings. So they're progressive woke and, and they're going to play on the, the emotions of the world and say that, okay, well, there's apartheid and colonization and, and, and all, all that stuff. And at the same time, at laughing in everyone's faces, knowing at the end of the day, this is a religious war. And they do believe that they have to kill every single Jew for them to, to, to reign su supreme here on the land. Okay, well, I would just say this, though. Whatever you think of the last government, which there were a lot of problems with, it was significant that you had a Muslim Brotherhood leader at a party itself that had historically not recognized Israel's right to exist and everything else participate in a government. I don't want to get into a whole thing on internal Israeli politics. It's not something that I um, I feel like in some ways is you're living there. You have much more of a stake in that than I do who, does, who chooses not to be an Israeli citizen. Although as a Jew, I understand Israel to be a safe haven in case, in, just in case. My point is only that it's not a monolith. And my hope... Uh, would be that the Palestinians, particularly those in Gaza, would look at Hamas and they would say, what have you gotten us other than misery? It's 15 years. What does Hamas do? Hamas does the same sort of thing. They're taking our women. You, you know, they have no respect. You should be, you should be outraged. Look at these indignities. And it's all a deflection from their misrule. It's all a deflection from the fact that they are brutal to their internal critics. They are incapable of running an economy. They're totally corrupt. They act as if they are these kind of pure Muslim, but they're not. They're, you know, there's all kinds of hypocrisy there. And, you know, my hope is that over time, Palestinians would understand that they have had terrible choices for their leaders, whether it was Arafat or these other folks, and that eventually they would understand that they can coexist with a Jewish state that is not interested in, you know, that's the sort of, Key, the key difference, right, is that the Israelis are not interested in the extermination of all the Palestinians, but it's the Palestinian leadership, at least over the years, that can't, you can't say the same about them. And that's the that's the key difference. Yeah, listen, ultimately, I still believe a few things. First of all, 
the the piece through strength is crucial in, in this neck of the woods. Oh, I think that's totally. without a doubt. And and you're saying totally, but that means you know settling the entire land of Israel. I think the Jews should be settling left and right, and I don't think they have to make a whole uh, you know brouhaha about it, but. We should definitely make it clear that the land, the land that we have, the land that we won fair and square is ours, and we are going to live here and grow here and thrive here and stop being sissies about it. Okay, but you know that you know as an Israeli that there are also Israeli Arabs that participate in the economy and are citizens. Isn't that they enjoy they enjoy equal rights. Um, when you know, I I I remember I wrote a piece many years ago when I was at UPI about the um, one of the main hospitals that treated the fir- the victims of suicide bombings, but it was really bad in two thousand one, two thousand two. And on the Sabbath, there were a number of Palestinian doctors who were treating the Jewish victims often, and sometimes even Palestinian victims because these were you know acts of terror where random people. So my point is is that it's not a monolith. I would imagine that most people just really want to, you know, live and have their families prosper. And it's quite possible to have a Jewish state and a Jewish democratic state and still have an Arab minority population. I don't think that that's a crazy idea. I think you're giving the Arabs too much credit, honestly. I mean, if you saw that there was a viral clip of, of Arabs dancing in, in a elevator shaft that was in one of these hospitals the day of the on, on Sunday morning. I saw that. I'm Listen, I just think that sometimes these videos... That you're talking about the viral videos, they can give you an impression that it's speaking for all. I know you live there. I, and I'm not I trying sh- to. I'm, I'm just saying, saying like, that, like I shop here in the grocery store and I am uncomfortable. I walk my kids to school in the morning and I'm anxious when I see Palestinian workers because the same guy who delivers my fruits, Amir, he's a great guy. He sends me the best strawberries every time he sees me. He's so excited. He brings boxes to the car. He's enthusiastic. Okay. He's loving. He's kind. I don't know when he's going to turn on me. I have zero faith in the Arabs. I want to live here. And listen, I'm a, a second generation Holocaust survivor. I'm very, very interested on the topic. I read a ton about it. I feel like I'm reliving it in, in so many ways, especially now in this modern age where there's so much information online and so much more studies and so many more books. And there's just so much. Even when I was a kid, we had a couple of books on the Holocaust. And now, you know, Kanye West is bringing it all back up on the Alex Jones show. Well, we should talk about that. But, but, but I want to just say it is not reliving in the in the in the it, we're not reliving the Weimar Republic and the Third Reich. And I'll tell you why, because there is a Jewish state, a Jewish state that is powerful and effective. And in many ways, the envy of so much of the world in terms of its economy and technological innovation and everything else, that that's a key difference. Because when the Nazis tried to exterminate our people, no country at the Conference of Evian was willing to take in Jews when they offered. And we, it was, that's the strongest argument for why there has to be a Jewish state. And uh, on this, we obviously agree, but that's the, I think that's an important difference. Okay. You know, because believe me, there's all, there have been Arab and, and Persian despots, you know, who wanted, you know, the Iranians want to destroy Israel. They want to kill all the Jews, but they can't because there's a strong Jewish state. And and because of people like you, we're going to keep it that okay, way. Okay, thank you. you thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I spoke to Walter Bingham. I don't know if you know who he is. He's the oldest working journalist in the world. He's 99 years old. He turned 99. He lives, oh my goodness. He lives here in, in Israel. He has a podcast on um, Israel News Talk Radio. And he, he, lived, he grew up in Germany, and he lived till uh, six years under the Germ- German rule. He went to school, and he was there at the infamous book burning. And he says that the environment today, in his opinion— and he's completely lucid. I just did a podcast interview with him. Is mm-hmm. is it re- reminds him distinctly of uh, the the pre Holocaust 
um, well, era. In where? Where? Where is he talking abroad. about? Is he talking about the abroad, environment? Not abroad, not in Israel. Okay. Yeah, abroad, around the world. Well, that can there there can certainly I would I would accept that there there might be some parallels in anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism. But I'm just saying the key difference is there is a Jewish state and it's a powerful one. Right. And we have to protect it. I just want to bring up another interesting anecdote from from the Torah, actually. You know, when the Jews first came to Israel, originally after leaving Egypt, Moses sent spies and the spies came into the land and they were overwhelmed by the giants and the size of the fruits. Except for Joshua. Except for Joshua. Right. Joshua and the other guy. And they were the only ones who came back. I think we can take them. Right. What a great, I love that story. <laughs> you always need the zealots. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I don't know. No, what a, I mean, Joshua, what an incredible figure. I mean, I'm trying to imagine on the eve of battle into Canaan, you've got all these young men that were not circumcised and they, he has them all circumcised. I mean, I can't imagine it with Flint Rock or something like what. Yeah. An amazing, what an incredible story that is. Yeah. Well, the, Jew- yeah, Josh, the Jews were hero. warriors. I think in this day and age, we are painted as, yeah. I don't know, weak and not not zealous. But the Jews were, I mean, they, they say about King David that he he was able to kill a thousand people from the top of his horse with his knife. I mean, according to, to, to legend. And, you know, he killed Samson. But the point is that when the spies came back to Moses, they actually, they told Moses that they felt like grasshoppers. But the, the language used is that they felt like grasshoppers in their own eyes. And the Medrash draws from that that the reason they weren't able to, at that point, feel confident that they could take over the Canaanites is because they felt small and they felt weak. And because they felt weak, that's what the enemy the enemies perceived. And for me, that's very, very important. I feel like mm. it's extremely important for Israel to project that kind of strength, confidence, independence. I don't know if it means financial independence or just an indifference to to yeah. what the world has to say. The UN is a big fat thorn. Well, let, we can talk about the UN, but I would just say there's another element there too, which is that why was there 40 years in the desert? Because you had a generation that were slaves and you needed a new generation that were not slaves in order to build a new nation. Mm-hmm. And that there's a real wisdom in that as well. For sure. I mean, even post Holocaust, yeah. the the, the I mean, you you spoke about Golda Meir in one of your podcasts. I must have read her memoir a dozen times. I'm obsessed with her. But she's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. She describes when she landed here after a hellish trip overseas. She came in the middle of the summer, and there was nothing. There was nothing here. And she came from America, where they were living like you know Halba mentioned, ha- right? From Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, and she, she put in the physical work. I mean, she ended up being the prime minister, the first female prime minister in the world, which is, by the way, crazy. It's even crazy. I was thinking about it. They don't even teach about her in American schools. How could they not teach about the first female prime minister anywhere in the world? Like, how is that not part of the curriculum? I mean, I know why it's not part I, of the I curriculum. I don't know enough about it. Yeah, um, but the fact of the matter is. It was that generation of fresh, fresh, enthusiastic young people that were tilling the rocks out of the mountainside and putting the physical work in to make this land into what it is today. So, yes, it takes fresh blood and it takes that idealism. It, that is my concern with the Palestinians as well, though, because here we are, a second generation into this indoctrination, and you have young, strong. I mean, this the, the terrorist was 13 years old. You have a, a second generation of of, of children that have been born into what I believe to be an absolute uh, a myth, a lie, a, a, man, a, a manufactured fallacy that they're teaching in the curriculum in the schools. So we have a, a super 
militarized and zealous Palestinian youth, you know, people will share something and say, oh, look, there's Jewish settlers with big guns. And oh, look, there's a Jewish settler. They threw a rock at a window. And I'm thinking, how could you possibly make a parallel between the 50,000 you know, militarized jihadis that are they're weaponized to the teeth and to a, a couple of settlers that have just pretty much had it from the terrorism? You know what I mean? So we, we definitely, what I'm, what I'm ultimately trying to say is that we have a young and vibrant youth on both sides. And that is a recipe for disaster because no one's running out of steam in this country. <laughs> well, I mean, if I may, one thing to note is that, you know, when Israel was founded, the foreign policy was called the foreign policy of the periphery because they thought it would be an impossibility to ever have normal relations with Arab neighbors. Now we see with the Abraham Accords, but then before that also Camp David. I mean, we see that Israel has peace agreements now um, with the United Arab Emirates, Egypt. It's not perfect, but the approach of the Saudi leadership, the Emirati leadership, the Arab, um, they they understand that the that they are much better off if they have an alliance with Israel against Iran than you know, what it was 30, 40 years ago when you had the entire Arab world that were supporting uh, the irredentist and most extremist side of the Palestinian leadership. So that's the first thing. So where do the Palestinians turn at this point? Well, I mean, are they going to turn to the Iranians? I I am, uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a soothsayer, but I think the Iranian regime is facing a legitimacy crisis right now. The world is moving on. The logic of having a peace process and forcing Israel to make land for peace concessions, which was the U.S. policy, you know, for many years, I guess it sort of still is, maybe it may be hard to explain. But there's the, the, the logic behind that is no longer because the Arab states are no longer asking for it. The Arab states support Israel for the most part in this. The Arab states are very concerned. They realize they made a mistake for supporting, especially the Saudis, for years, this you know extremely radical, poisonous ideology in the name of their religion. My hope is that over time, the Palestinian people will look around and they will say, we don't have anybody who is backing us. What are we doing here? Maybe we need to come to terms with the fact that we're not going to drive the Jewish people to the sea. That that can happen. I mean, I'm not saying it can hopefully happen over time. I understand the anger. Now, the problem in some ways is that there's a new generation in Europe and America that is reflexively pro-Palestinian oh, that totally. is de delaying this, what I would hope to be an epiphany from the Palestinians that these myths of of destroying Israel will never happen. They're, they're feeding into and, it, and they don't. They're feeding into it, and they don't understand yeah. the ideology. Also, and I also I was ta telling my husband before. It's interesting because Hebrew and Arabic are written uh, a red right to left, and English right. is left to right. Yeah. and it's such an interesting uh, concept because we really do think differently here in the Middle East, and this concoction of liberal ideology and the Islamic mentality is is, is it's not really compatible. So I think just the anger, the underlying underlying anger is there maybe the underlying anti-semitism is there but it's a lot of lack of education or miseducation uh, of our youth all around the world i think that yeah well there there's certainly something to that you know it's so but at the same time i mean i just think it's a better situation for israel than it was 30 or 40 years ago too yeah, in some ways, in some ways, it's it's definitely exhausting. It's definitely tiring. I was hoping at this point things could be a little bit different, but you know, we keep praying and uh, with God's help and with the help of our Jewish brothers and sisters all across the world, um, eventually we will 
we will get there because I do think that at the end of the day, the Jewish people are determined to live at peace and to be a beacon of light around the world. And if we can't accomplish that, then it's all for naught. We don't need a country. If the reaction to it creates tension across uh, the universe, like our goal is world peace. It really is world peace. And it's not just about sitting pretty here in Israel. And we hope for more. We do hope for more. And that's why this situation is so sad. Israelis, after after their military, they go to India I mean, they used to go to Turkey. I don't know. If they still go to Turkey. They go to India. They they go to South America. I mean, they go all over the mm-hmm. world. And they're starting to go to China and Abu Dhabi. And, you know, I mean, there's a whole, it's the world. I think the Middle East is really changing. And it's terrible when you see these horrible stories about, you know, I mean, to think of, you know, to, to attack a synagogue like that. You know, it's just, there's no, you, there's, you can't, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. But it's not like it was. In 2000 or 2001, where that kind of thing was happening. Well, Israel is up weeks. the ante. Israel has is, is, is learned. I mean, oh. the security cameras, the the, the military, yeah. we've learned from our mistakes. And the Palestinians also recognize that certain things they're not going to be able to pull off anymore. So they try other tactics, you know. In any case, um, like I said, hopefully there'll be peace and you'll be able to come back to Israel soon and we'll hang out and we'll get a... I'll come back to Israel now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I'm happy to I come hear to you Israel. Have a, I love you have, Israel. You have a young daughter? I do. She's one and a half. Nine and a half. You don't want to travel with a one and a half year old. Now that's terrorism right well, there. <laughs> I, d- I did travel with her to d- when we went to Sedona this year. Um, and she was very good on the plane, but I had to change a diaper in one of those airplane bathrooms, which was, uh, I, I feel like I should get some gold medal for being a dad for that. Yeah. Traveling with kids yeah. is really, really tough. Okay. Let's jump into yeah. something else. Most of my audience are observant Jews and they have some interest in, in world affairs. Obviously the war in Ukraine was something on, uh, on everybody's lips what is it a year now and i remember feeling like this is something that we're you know we we raise money for refugees here this is something we're going to be preoccupied with for months to come and we can't rest until the war is over and here we are a year later the war is not over you know zelensky was in israel recently there was a whole conversation about what he expects from the israelis and what he expects from from bb and and so can you explain in a nutshell first of all the current situation in ukraine uh, how the israeli alliance with russia is a security consideration and what foreign an- analysts are predicting about what the end of the ukraine russia war might look like well um let me answer the second one first i just had a, a dinner with uh with an expert on that uh last night actually and this person's prediction was that you would see something that it's a version of what's known as the Minsk II or the Minsk I agreements, where there would be an end of the war would be something like where you would allow for a plebiscite, which is a, an election which would hopefully be monitored. I mean, this is all really up to the Russians at this point in Luhansk and Donetsk and these oblasts where it's somewhat, I, I don't want to say it's its not really disputed, but its the Russians have made a play for it and supported separatist militias and you know, recognize okay, you already lost me. You, you're right. You need to explain that like to a five-year-old. You already lost me. All right. Let me explain it to the five-year-old. Okay. okay. All right. In 2014, Russia took with very little resistance, the peninsula of Crimea, and then began supporting Russian speaking separatists in oblasts are like just provinces, I guess okay. that are bordering from Ukraine into uh, Russia. Okay. And I remember this, right. They they have now created a situation where the, the status of these oblasts has been what has been negotiated after the 2014 war. And it's also a huge focus of the current war that began almost a year ago. Okay. 
Okay, so that's the let's let's so that's number one. Okay, um, the Russian case for the mistreatment of Russian speakers is ridiculous. Uh, most people who live in Ukraine, who even if they're native Russian speakers, do not want to be dominated by Russia. There's a long history of the Russians starving Ukraine under Stalin. Um, this fantasy that it should be part of Russia because 800 years ago, there was a kingdom in Kiev in Rus, and that Kiev was really the capital of this empire for the Russian people is all nonsense because of the history that has happened since then, and particularly the history of Russian domination and imperialism. Now, when you say, how would it end? Well, you would allow for some sort of internationally recognized plebiscite's just a fancy way of sort of saying an election. Do you want to be independent? Do you want to stay in Ukraine? And something like that. And 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 you may end up getting territory that would be sort of be relinquished, but the the problem why you haven't had that yet is because the Russians want to simultaneously say, oh, we should have an election. The Ukrainians don't have a right to this territory, but they also are, you know, basically supplying this army that's intention is to break up Ukraine and, and so they're speaking and, from both sides uh, of their mouth. Well, and you can't have a free, you can't have a free vote. You can't have an electoral contest. If one side of that, uh, you know, has guns that are willing to kill people. Right. I mean, it, it's like when they had so-called elections after world war two, where, you know, you suddenly saw these governments emerge in Eastern Europe that wanted to be part of the Warsaw pact and things like that. Well, it was because the Bolshevik side, uh, was willing to use violence to get what they wanted. It wasn't like a totally free, like, okay, you guys can choose. So that's the sticky part, but that might be a way that it can end. You know, in the meantime, Russia has suffered a huge defeats. Mm -hmm. um, they have been humiliated. They um, thought they were able to take Kiev. They clearly cannot do that. And they have lashed out in the most brutal way using World War II tactics of basically imprecision bombing meaning or not or maybe it is precise but basically using you know missiles and uh bombing sorties indiscriminately, against civilian yeah. infrastructure mm -hmm. indiscriminately which is just horrific but at the same time russia has been able to stabilize its economy i think in large part because the chinese are helping to sort of subsidize and chinese have chosen their side of it so that's the sort of situation now um i don't think that the ukrainian people are any closer to any kind of capitulation to live under you know, Russian influence or anything like that. So that's not going to happen. Now, on the question of Israel and Russia, well, if this was 2007, uh, it would be much easier for Israel to be more fully aligned with the U.S. policy on this because Russia did not in 2007 have, have an alliance with Israel, right? Since 2015, 2016, right. which is air bases in Syria. Right. Now, Syria has been dissolving now for more than 10 years. And that has given an opportunity for Iran and its proxies in Hezbollah to get closer to, to Israel. Advanced yeah. weaponry into Lebanon that would target uh, Israel mm -hmm. and the Israeli cities. That's an existential crisis. It is miraculous. It, it should go down in the Diplomacy Statecraft Hall of Fame that Benjamin Netanyahu was able to negotiate an agreement with Vladimir Putin that allowed for Israel to target Hezbollah convoys in Syria while Russia was allied with Hezbollah and Iran in the Syrian civil war against 
America, its neighbors, and at times ISIS and so forth. So the point is that Israel it's a very delicate relationship. This, I would imagine uh, it's an extraordinary accomplishment, and it really is. You know, I think that Netanyahu has great flaws and but and great strengths, but that is part of his legacy that will go down in history as as really something that has been essential for the survival of the Jewish state and the Jewish people. So that right there puts Israel in an impossible situation. I think that the people of Israel are probably 100% behind Zelensky, a Jewish president of Ukraine, fighting Russian aggression. I mean, people talk about Russian emigres to Israel, but Russian Russians who come to Israel, they have no love for Russia. They were leaving Russia. Russia was very bad. Under the Soviet Union, it was a very bad place to be Jewish. Ironically, Vladimir Putin, who I think is a fiend, a terrible, um, is a monster, but he has been maybe, if you want to look at the sort of scope of Russian history, one of the greatest Russian leaders when it comes to treatments of the Jews. If you and that's because the history of Russian leaders has been horrendous when it comes. Yeah, to Yeah, my the grandparents Jews. I mean, are from Russia. I had two uncles in Siberian prisons for twenty years. I know every. So I you know, this, yeah. I mean, my my family is from Kiev. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Ukrainians have not been very good for the Jews either historically, but it's that's why it's so miraculous that they have a Jewish president and a Jewish Secretary of Defense or Chief of Staff of the military. I forget how it's, but. It's that's an extraordinary thing. So when they say it's a Nazi army or whatever, it's Russian propaganda. It it just is. It's it, the proper response to that is to laugh in that person's face. Say, okay, it's the worst. They're the worst Nazis I've ever seen because they're taking commands from Jews. Is Zelensky what, what is Zelensky about? not aware of this delicate dance that Israel has to maintain with 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 Russia? Well, I think he probably is aware of it, but he's also fighting. You know, it's where you sit is where you stand. He's fighting for for is he's fighting for Ukraine. Right. He wants everything that he can get for Ukraine right now. So he's willing to make Joe Biden feel uncomfortable. He's willing to publicly criticize his European allies, right. people who are supplying his army right now with all this essential material, because he just wants more and more and more. And he knows he's in the right. So I don't in some ways I don't blame him, but I, it's Israel can't risk too much right now when it comes to Russia, because if Russia turns that deal off. Then Israel will then have to then deal with if they want to get to the Hezbollah convoys, they're going to have to then get in a shooting war with Russian MIGs and they don't want to do and that. And I also I was telling my husband, what is uh, our in- intentions ultimately? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, let the Ukrainian Jews make Aliyah. Um, that's, you know, bound to happen in, in any case. And I, I wasn't I mean, I don't know. Like you're talking about the Syrian airspace, and obviously that's crucial. But even something like giving an Iron Dome, how could Israel possibly risk having our our, our our most important uh, tool for military defense end up in the hands of the Russian. I mean, that's just suicide in and of itself. There's only so much we can bend over backwards for Ukraine. And like I said, if it's not for the Jewish people, let the Jewish people make If Aliyah. it wasn't for the Syria situation, I would be in favor of doing more. I mean, there's also Israeli drones. There's things that Israel can do that would help them help the Ukrainians, I think, because there's been these Iranian drones, which they use to great effect uh, at this point. I mean, by the way, how humiliating is it? for Russia, that they have to import defense technology from a country like Iran, which has been under sanctions for 40 years. So that's amazing. Like, what a pathetic uh, country the Ru- Russia Yeah, well, really war doesn't bring out the best in anybody, and this has just been a... Well, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Well, war can bring out the best in some people. I mean, it brought up, historically, you know, the winners usually... World War II was very good for America, you know, I mean... That's true. That is true. The War of Independence, the War of Independence for Israel in 1948... 
gave us an amazing generation or two generations almost of leaders. Yeah, but um, it depends who you ask. It also gave us the Nakba yeah. and all. I mean, the, the amount of Jewish blood that has been spilled in Russia and in Ukraine. I mean, that whole yeah, situation there, it feels, it feels a little like a lost cause. I'm not going to keep you any longer. Thank you so much for being here, Eli. It was oh, really a you. pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we could do oh, this again. Oh, I love again. talking to you, yeah. and I love that we were disagreeing on stuff. That's great. I mean, yeah. I think it's really important. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a big so fan of your show. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so people could check out your podcast. And I will come to Israel. I want to. I've been meaning to come to Israel now for a while, and and you know, I don't know. They'll. I I get invited from time to time, so I want to. So when I do, I would love to come to your. Let me know. Area. We'll pick you up um, from the airport. We'll take you yeah. out for dinner. We'll show you around. What an incredible country! I love it. Anyway. There you have it, episode 87 of the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. Don't forget to leave me a five-star rating. Check out my show notes. Visit Labai Gifts. Register for a free gift today. Plant a tree in Israel. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend. Because thanks to you guys, I have a super popular show. And that makes me happy. And in return, I will make you happy. And I will see you on Thursday.